Hey, and welcome to the Sullivan on Comp podcast. Today's episode is audio from a recent Sullivan on Comp webinar. SOC webinars include video and slides, and subscribers receive professional credit for attending. This recording is free, but doesn't qualify for credit. To learn more, visit www.sullivanoncomp.com. This podcast does not constitute legal advice. Instead, it's provided for informational purposes. Only your attorney, with complete knowledge of the facts and circumstances of your situation, can determine how the relevant laws apply. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to yet another Sullivan on Comp webinar during our uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis. Um, my name is Mike Sullivan. I'm your speaker. Uh, usually, I like to have a, um, a someone speaking with me, but um, you know, this is the fourth in a series we're doing on uh, the COVID-19 um, virus and what it means for employers and um, insurance carriers and the world in general. Um, this is a production of um, Sullivan on Comp, uh, not the law firm. So well, I, I'm a um, the general managing partner of Michael Sullivan and Associates, which is, you know, a fairly large uh, law firm with nine offices throughout California. And um, so, you know, I operate in that capacity day in and day out. We don't just do workers' comp. We do employment law, immigration law, insurance litigation, civil litigation as well. Um, but I'm also the author of Sullivan on Comp. And Sullivan on Comp is a treatise, a big bunch of books. Uh, if you listening to this, you very well may be a subscriber. Uh, normally, we put on monthly webinars just for the subscribers and quarterly webinars, um, educating the world. But coronavirus virus is such an important time that we decided that we're going to take this Sullivan on Comp presentation and we're going to share it with the world, um, our client base and anyone else who wants to listen. Um, you know, the distinction is for me is between running a law firm and running Sullivan and Comp is that when I run a law firm, I'm a defense guy and I see everything from a defense perspective, which is my job. Although, of course, seeing things from the other side is important to do too. You just pretend like you don't agree with it or you actually don't agree with it, right? <laughs> but I'm also, when I wear the Sullivan on Comp hat, that's a treatise that's intended to be neutral and to explore all different um, aspects of the law, the different considerations, opinions, and arguments that may arise under those considerations to really try to be neutral and give a complete exposition. This is a Sullivan on Comp uh, presentation. Uh, so that's, that's the hat I'm wearing today. So hopefully this will be useful uh, and broad-based. Um, now that's me, uh, I'm the presenter, this is my email. You may wanna write down my email because during these presentations, we don't have um, a lot of time to answer questions. We have a limited amount of time. Um, this one's just an hour. And uh, so if you have questions, you can email me directly. There'll be an email at the end too for to solve on a comp email. And if you have questions, you can send the questions. Or if you have comments and you wanna say you were fabulous or you were horrible, or whatever you want to say, or you want to ask a question, we'll get, I can get back to you within a reasonable time period. Usually it's right away, but lately it's been so busy, man. It's crazy for everybody. It's taken me a couple of days in some instances to get back. Normally I speak with somebody else, but this one was set up in kind of a hurry. So in the future, you'll probably get to hear not just me, but one of my partners or, or somebody else um, that knows a lot that, that'll help me uh, present. Um, now, look, we've done three two-hour webinars, and they're very broad-based, and they included Eric um, and Keith. Um, Eric is the, the partner in charge of our employment law section, 
And we went deep on a, a lot of stuff, but it was very generalized about what's going on with coronavirus in California and the effect it's having on everybody and what everybody needs to do. You know, in employment law, there's this whole thing about extended sick leave, extended FMLA, there's, you know, the CARES Act, there's uh, all kinds of stuff going on and new laws that have been passed in a rush and we're trying to interpret them and implement them all in a very practical environment where we're trying to take care of people. And, you know, my whole law firm, we all went home to work in two days. You know, we were operating everybody from home. So it's crazy, right? It's a crazy time. Um, and we talked about the generalities of it in, in that context. Um, but not this one. This is a different because when I was thinking about um, I was thinking about it, I started to realize all of the implications and issues for coronavirus claims, not only claims that the coronavirus itself is industrially caused, but that that could be aggravations of underlying industrial conditions or other manifestations of this, like psychological claims. Um, so, you know, there's a million different things to think about in workers' comp, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized, wow, you know, there's just hours and hours. In fact, the last time we planned our two-hour presentation, we had four hours worth of slides. So I decided to, and I announced this last time, and I think we advertised for it, is I'm going to do one of these every Thursday at noon. And I'm going to keep doing them from, for four to eight weeks, and I'm going to go deep on a particular subject. And I'm going to try and just work my way through uh, so that you, everyone out there can get a good, deep understanding of each aspect of of what applies. Like, when do you provide temporary disability when someone is on modified duty and then they're laid off um, for reasons of coronaviruses? Should you give TTD or not? You know, there's a, there's a really in-depth discussion about that and a lot of options and a lot of circumstances and considerations. When is it work-related? What about home as a second work site? Are injuries there compensable um, going to and from? What about psychological injuries? And if you send everyone home, is it if per, good faith personnel action and is it an actual event of employment and what is the standard for a non-occupational illnesses such as this generally what are the exceptions how do they apply when is it industrial i go on and on and i will go on and on for uh for <laughs> a few weeks because we really need to understand this stuff in depth i'm in, pro in the process of putting it in writing and we'll be making an announcement next week regarding that uh but uh what we're doing now is we, we've picked our first topic and that is when do you provide a claim form? Seems like a pretty simple question, huh? Um, when do you provide a claim form to an applicant who claims uh, coronavirus uh, as, as industrial? Do you just give it to everybody, right? Everybody in your organization um, that says, I have the sniffles, do you give them a claim form? Um, do you limit it to some circumstances? Uh, what are you supposed to do? So that's what we're gonna talk about today is when could you, when should you, what are the legal standards, what are the consequences for failing to provide it? So super duper important judgment. I think every carrier and employer needs to have a very clear cut idea in their own mind as, as to what they're doing. But one of the other things I'm doing um, in these sessions is I'm gonna um, talk about what is, uh, what is going on this week? Like what's in the news with the coronavirus? And I'm gonna jump into that before we talk about the claim forms. I do have a slide here discussing our uh, past uh, presentations. They're all right here. You can see them on Sullivan on Comp. 
or non-subscribers can see them too. And here's the addresses. The difference is you can get professional credit, MCLEs, MC or CEs, if you uh, decide to go see it at SOC. But you got to be a subscriber. Most of you listening to this are, are probably close subscribers or deeply desire to be, I'm sure. And so uh, this is where you can see the first three parts that we did. One was, you know, like I said, they're very generalized and what's going on with workers' comp, liability issues, employment law issues. Then we have the interactive process, reasonably accommodating people with uh, COVID. And then um, last time was the burning issues. We just laid out all the issues I just discussed. So if you haven't seen them, check them out. They're available to you at the addresses here. But like I said, before we jump into the claim form, first, we're going to talk about um, the, the update, like what's going on. Well, we're still at home, right? Everybody's at home, except the essential jobs. Uh, people doing essential jobs are not at home. They have to go out and do the essential jobs. So you can still go to Wendy's and get a double cheeseburger, right? Uh, people are still picking up the trash. We have cops, firefighters, nurses, healthcare. And, you know, we went into it last time quite a bit, um, but it's very confusing as to what's an essential job and what's a non-essential job. I just realized the other day, I'm non-essential. I'm a non-essential person. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of good in a way because that means I'm not, it's, I never felt so glad to be non-essential before. But anyway, the essential people are out there in the world and that's one of the issues. You know, usually um, a cold or a flu is not industrially not related. But if everybody's out working, um, that has an essential job, and the general public's at home, then you're in a different position than the general public, right? And that's one of the exceptions. If your job makes it more risky for you to contract a disease, then it's compensable. That's a general standard. We got that into a lot, into that a lot in the last presentations, but um, and we're going to get into it more in the next few. But uh, you know, that's what's happening anyway. We're all at home. I'm at home, working on my computer, doing Zoom calls, trying to run, you know, a law firm with almost 200 people in it. It's pretty crazy. It's a bummer. You know, um, my law firm has done things like, you know, found ways to be in contact with clients and others um, in the virtual environment. Um, and we're all in court, uh, taking phone calls, um, you know, instead of going to the court itself, virtual depots, virtual QMEs. Um, it's weird. And it's just starting and it's always changing and it's pretty horrible. Um, the latest extension was through at least May 15th, at least in Los Angeles. Um, I know the board has spoken, I think, until the end of um, till the end of April, at least. But you got to think that it's going to go on until we've got this thing licked. And nobody, nobody really knows how long it's going to be. Uh, so we're all just kind of speculating and watching TV and reading studies and sorting the wheat and chaff. Um, and other things that have happened, um, the insurance commissioner came out and reminded the industry that undocumented workers do get workers' comp. That's a long-standing principle. They used to not get placement services and voc rehab when voc rehab was a thing, but it isn't anymore. So now undocumented workers are not any different than anybody else. That was an announcement. Um, there was an announcement the other day by the insurance commissioner that our premiums should be refunded, at least to some extent, and that carriers have until August 20th to do that. Um, what that means is like, you know, you're not driving your car, right? You hardly ever drive your car because you're sitting at home. Um, and so should you pay as much car insurance? 
And this kind of thinking applies across the board to all kinds of insurance. Workers' comp's kind of different. You know, you kind of pay for the number of employees you have. And as we'll see in upcoming seminars, um, the uh, the chances of getting hurt may be equal to or more than if you're working at home than if you're not. Uh, of course, being furloughed is another matter. Uh, anyway, so that announcement was made about premiums. So maybe we're going to see a little bit refund on our premiums in the future. Um, there was an announcement from the WCIB, the Workers' Comp Insurance Rating Bureau. They're the ones that decide how much the uh, insurance rates should be, the premiums should be out there in the world. And they set minimum amounts so that there's not underselling and massive bankruptcy. Well, they looked at it and, you know, if you're an employer, you're pretty concerned about X mod, right? Your experience modification. That's how many claims you have, how severe they are, how long they lasted. And that goes into this algorithm, which determines how much you pay in workers' comp. Now, if you don't have um, any workers' comp claims and your X mod is really low and then you don't pay any workers' comp or your workers' comp is really low. But if you have a bad X mod because you have lots of claims, well, then, you know, you're going to have a high workers' comp premium. Well, they, they're trying to figure out the pre pure premium rate. And one of the things that WCRB is considering is excluded, excluding COVID-19 from X mods. They're going to say, well, look, this if you get a claim of COVID-19, that's unusual. It's like came out of nowhere. It's not going to repeat itself. It doesn't do very well when it comes to predicting future amounts of claims that you may have. So they put an announcement out there thinking about excluding um, um, COVID-19 claims from X mods. In my own mind, that's a more complex issue than presented because, like, let's say you're working at home and you fall down and hurt your knee. Well, arguably, that's work-related, just like if you fell down and hurt your knee um, at, in a physical work environment if the home is a second office, which, like I said, we'll talk about in future. But, you know, look, it's not just did you get um, COVID-19 from work or not. This is not that simple. You know, there's a lot of ways that, that a claim could arise from COVID-19. You're stressed out because your your boss sent you home, right? And everybody's stressed out and they all get psychologically injured. Is that a COVID-19 injury or not? It should be excluded from the XMOD. Uh, all these things are going to have to be thought about with through the WCRB. Uh, telemedicine is on the rise. Tele-everything is on the rise, right? So the DAWC this week ordered changes to the fee schedule to make telemedicine easier. And um, meanwhile, at the board... You know, for a few days now, we've been making phone calls. So what's happening is, is, is it's just this weird world. So first couple of weeks, they put us all on court call for court appearances. They continued all the trials, continued all the, the link conferences, and said all the other conferences, MSCs, priority conference, status conference. Um, you know, we're going to be on court call, and we will hear live expedited hearings. But if you don't show up for the court call, then we're just going to continue it. And so they would just continue it because parties would only show up when they actually wanted the case to move. So a lot of cases got continued. Obviously, that wasn't going to work long term. So they said, OK, we're going to have everybody call in to the board. Um, you know, we're going to um, everyone's going to appear by telephone. And we've been doing that now for a few days. And I've been asking around the firm and talking to people. And they say it works really well if you call each other ahead of time and it's you call in. It depends on the judge and how it's organized. If the judge is present, then they would kick roll call for everybody. It goes pretty fast. They go in alphabetical order. Um, they may send you an email and tell you what time you should call back in. Um, but it doesn't really work if you just don't talk to each other and show up and argue with the judge. Is, you know, Because you go to court, usually physically you talk to each other outside. You figure it out what you want to do. Or if you disagree what the disagreement is, you go and see the judge. But 
you know, there's not as much opportunity to do that. So not as much gets done, right? You just get in front of the judge. It's really important to try and talk to each other ahead of time because otherwise you're not going to get much done probably. Most of these cases are getting continued. Most of the time when an applicant's attorney um, or a defense attorney doesn't show up, it just gets continued by the judge because of the peculiar circumstances here make it likely that good cause is likely going to be shown uh, for failure to appear. Um, I got a tip that it'd be a good idea to do the steps and issues and send them to the other side ahead of time if you're a defense person because that might give you a better chance of, of uh, getting a trial date if indeed um, a judge is willing to do that. Trials now are being set for June, which is pretty far away. I don't know if the board will be open in June. Hopefully they won't get to get continued again. But, you know, without the pressure of trial, it's it's harder to move cases better. And we're still seeing an unusual amount of continuances. Uh, the telephone system appears to be fundamentally working, though, which is great because it's our only way to be in court uh, right now. Another issue that arose recently is should applicant attorneys get reimbursement for court calls? You know, is this a legitimate cost? That's an interesting question. There's no answer to it. Um, some things applicants' attorneys get costs for, other things they don't, right? Um, uh, so that's something that's going to have to be debated. I'm going to go ahead and solve it on comp and write a big article about it, I think. Uh, one thing we're doing here at the firm is we're revising our hearing notices, and in them we put, you know, uh, we, we did it for depots. Um, you know, we said in our depot notices, we changed them to say, if people can't appear, then it's going to be done by by um, a virtual depot. You know, it's going to be done by uh, Zoom or go to meeting or something. And that was a good idea to put in the um, in the depot notices. What we're doing with our hearing notices is we're saying, okay, here's the judge and here's the phone number. So here's the time. And so we have a very specific hearing notice that makes sure that the other side is notified exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And that way they can't say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. This is a new system and I'm, you know, not responsible for my professional actions. <laughs> so anyway. And finally, um, in the news, um, there's still no physical filings. Um, but it's they, they put out a notice, and I think it was a CAW notice that said, hey, don't forget, you have to register if you want to do e-filing. And that means taking a little course. It means signing a piece of paper. And there's a backlog. So if you're not registered, you better hurry up because you can end up not being able to file anything until next month, and you don't want to be in that position because you can't file anything physically. You want any CNRs approved, you got to get yourself in order. The DWC also created a webinar to help with successfully filing edocs and um so it's at eforms at dr.california.gov so that's the current state that's this week for this week it's uh what is it it's the uh, 15th something like that yeah so that's what's going on the 15th i'm sure to you know um or, you know to, two days from now it'll be different but luckily we'll be talking every week so i'll be keeping you apprised as we go along okay so let's get into the claim form why is this a big deal? Because, you know, as COVID cases arise, we're going to need to know, like now, we need to know what is our policy? What are we going to do? Are we going to give the employee a claim form? Um, boy, there's a lot to think about here, right? Because, you know, you give the employee a claim form, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to fill it out and give it back to you, and now you got a claim. Um you don't want to do that if you're an employer generally. Employers generally won't do that unless they have knowledge, and we'll see in a minute what that means. 
they won't provide a claim form because it, you know, employees a lot of times they don't even mean to file a claim form. You give them a claim form, they fill it out. They think it's just like what you do. Your employer gives you a form, you fill it out, you sign it. Now, now there's a claim and they don't know what to do and they get a lawyer and now you're in litigation. So you don't want to borrow trouble, right? Um, but on the other hand, what are there circumstances under which you're obliged to file a claim form? And are there circumstances where there's an ethical obligation, right? I mean, we're all supposed to be on the same team here. We got a pandemic and we can't pull together as a society and help each other out. Then, you know, we're, we're not going to do very well. So what, what is, what's that? And then what about your corporate culture? I mean, how do you want to be perceived as an employer, irrespective of your absolute, your substantive <laughs> character and, um, the the actual way you're thinking how do you want to be perceived so what about that i mean let's say should you give everyone who has a sniffles a claim form automatically um if you have a factory and there's a lot of people that get covid then should you give it to everyone who gets it uh maybe not maybe maybe you do uh, what what about if you run a covid ward in a hospital and everyone's in isolation except for what they do there and then they get covid um, I think the right way to start with this is, you know, figuring out the legal obligation and then getting in, massaging it and figuring out, um, the other considerations once we have a very clear understanding of that. But, you know, look, I mean, there's downsides too, to not giving, I mean, if you give a, don't give a claim form, um, you know, maybe the person doesn't get treatment and then maybe they die. How would that make you feel? How would that be? Is that? You know, I mean, I, maybe that's dramatic, but a person with the claim form gets contacted by an insurance company, gets treatment. Maybe they're more likely to get tested. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's not an easy, it's not easy for an employer. You can't just say, well, we're not going to give claim forms out because there's no way to know if it's COVID-19 or not. Um, if they make a claim, we're obliged to give them a claim form. Um, and we, the, there's a lot of considerations that are going to have to go into forming a policy, I think, as an employer here. So let's get into it. Um, here's the, the relevant statutes. Uh, the, the main one is 5401A. And it says, and what we're doing here is that we, I just want to start, okay, by setting aside practical, ethical, societal considerations and just ask this question. What is the legal obligation? When are you legally obliged to provide a claim form to a worker? Let's get that clear. And then once we have that understanding, we can launch into a more in-depth discussion about the considerations for or against in any particular situation. So, um, uh, yeah, I think it can be fairly said that there's there's no universal rule. You shouldn't give a claim form in all situations at all times. But on the other hand, you shouldn't never give a claim form either. So we need to get clear on this. So starting with the legal standard, setting everything aside just to understand clearly what is the legal obligation to provide a claim form. Well, you start with 5401A, which says that you have to provide a claim form, quote, within one working day of receiving notice or knowledge of injury, right? Which results in time lost or medical treatment beyond first aid. When you get notice or knowledge of injury, which has this minimal impact, that's when you have to provide a claim form. Um, now, the employee is supposed to, the labor code actually says this, folks, believe it or not. It says that an employee is required to serve an employer with notice of injury in writing. So if you have an injury, you're supposed to go to your employer and give it in writing. <laughs> Does that ever happen? No. And that's because of 5402A, which says that if the employer knows about an injury obtained from any source, um, 
or, or they know about an assertion of claim of injury sufficient to afford opportunity to make an investigation. It's equivalent to this written service. So the question gets down to employer knowledge. When can an employer be said uh, to know? And it's really important because if you don't give them, if you give them a claim form and they and they um, and they fill it out and give it to you, you have 90 days to accept or deny the case. So the claim form is really important because it starts the 90-day clock ticking. So we get into questions of knowledge. And here's the thing. The, the standard for employer knowledge is high. And I'm going to say that right up front. Um, really high. And in fact, so high that it may be an argument, an employer may argue in almost any situation unless an applicant says, I would like a claim form because I have been injured at work. Um, in almost any situation involving an industrial disease like COVID-19, the employer could probably argue that they did not have the requisite knowledge to provide the claim form. But let me be specific. And here's why I think that. It's because of the case law. Honeywell is the seminal case on this. The Supreme Court of California rocked our world in 2005 because it used to be like if you had knowledge from any source, if you heard it, if you thought about it, if you you know sniffed it, you had to provide a claim form. But Honeywell changed it. And I'll give you the facts of Honeywell because understanding the facts will give you a clear idea as uh, to the standard. So what happened was there was um, a cumulative injury alleged, like injury over time, to the applicant's um, body and psyche due to employment. And then in October of 98, the, the wife, not the life, I have a typo on this, I'm sorry. The applicant's wife left a message with the employer's disability coordinator. The wife calls the, the person in authority at work, right? And she says, you have been, you have pushed my husband over the edge with your head games and now he's admitted to a psychiatric facility, <laughs> okay? Does this sound like a reporting of injury or knowledge of a claim? Does this sound like they know that he has an injury? I mean, they just said he is going to the hospital. He is going to the hospital because of what you did to him. That's what they said at Honeywell. Is this knowledge on the part of the employer? This became the issue. Um, at the time, the employer received hospitalization records which and they have records that made reference to both work problems and, and personal problems. They actually had these records in hand. They did not provide a claim form. The disability coordinator testified that he was, she was reasonably certain, these are the words, reasonably certain that the wife was reporting a work injury, right? Okay, so reasonably certain. Uh, three months later, uh, the employer got a medical leave request form on it, and there was a box check that said, this is a work-related injury. At that time, they sent a claim form and it was received and denied 75 five days later. But the question became is, you know, is it late? Because you know what happens if it's late, you're doomed, right? Well, you're not necessarily doomed, but you're in trouble. Um, because you know, if it's late, is a presumption of compensability and you can't use any other evidence you could have reasonably obtained in the first 90 days on the issue of AOC. But anyway, is, is the denial late? And there's an Ombach decision. Because if, if if the employer knew when the wife made that call, it's late. If the employer didn't know until they got the the box check saying work-related injury, it's not late. So did the wife making that call saying you've driven him into the hospital with your head games, is that knowledge? And the WCAB said yes, because knowledge starts when the employer is quote-unquote reasonably certain. But then the Supreme Court said no. And this really surprised me. Um, because 
you know, look, I mean, the guy said, I'm going to the hospital. You've driven me crazy, right? <laughs> what do you have to do to report an injury? What do you have to do to have knowledge um, if you're if you're an employer? Well, according to the Supreme Court, they said, look, the reason it doesn't say reasonably certain in the statute, folks. It says no. So if the employer has knowledge of injury, that's when the duty arises to provide the claim form and advise the applicant of their rights. It doesn't matter when you should have known. It doesn't matter when you reasonably could have known. It doesn't matter when you're reasonably certain that, that that's being stated. It only matters when you know, no. Not kind of no, not pretty much no, not reasonably certain no, but no. So, you know, the Supreme Court shot down the WCAB uh, and established that as a standard. So, look, I, I say that I make a big deal out of it because I'm trying to make the point. Like, look, this is this is tough. This is tough. The employer is held to a very, very lax standard when it comes to knowledge. You got to know, no, or the person has to come up and make an explicit claim. Otherwise, you don't have to provide a claim form under Honeywell. Now, look, Honeywell did say the employer could be stopped to deny the running of the 90-day investigation period. Uh, but to establish that, they'd have to show a, a sh have a showing of actual fraudulent intent rather than mere negligence. So it's even it's very difficult to assert the 90-day investigation period is triggered without a claim form being filed. So not only did Honeywell say the employer's got a no-no, but they said the 90 days doesn't start until you get a claim form. And it doesn't matter what knowledge you had. Uh, well, unless you knew new, right? If you knew new, then you have to give them the claim form. And then the 90 days starts ticking if you don't. But if it if you only are reasonably certain, that doesn't start the 90 days ticking. The only way the employer can be stopped is if they have fraudulent intent. Like, you know, the applicant says, I would like to report. They say, shut up and go back to work and sit in, you know, and then and then lies about it in a memo to the applicant. You didn't tell me anything, you know, in the meeting, something like that, something really bad. But, you know, Sunnywell set this really high standard generally. Now, the bar is really high. And we've seen it actually sustained in a couple of local cases. One is worth mentioning. It's uh, Batista versus Lee's paving. Um, this is a local case. And what happened there is the applicant was in a um, motor vehicle accident. He was coming to work and got in a car accident and got hurt. And the employer said, gee, that's terrible. And I think even sent him a note at the hospital. So really sorry that you got hurt. Well, more than a year passed, and then the applicant filed a claim. Um, and the court held, no, you're barred because the employer didn't know. Have you read Honeywell? They knew there was an accident. They knew you got hurt. They didn't know that it was work-related. You never claimed it was work-related. There was never, any, you know, they didn't have that knowledge. So you weren't clear. So look, in order for an employer to know, they have to number one, know that you have something you have an injury, disease, or you know a specific incident of injury. Um, they got to know that, and they got to know it's work-related. That's what's required for knowledge on the part of the employer, and that is a prerequisite for providing a claim form. Okay, so how does this apply to COVID-19 cases? Well, you know what I'm going to say? And again, I'm speaking just about the legal standard here. I'm not talking about using prudence or having a conscience or, you know, or making good judgment or caring about your employees, or I'm strictly talking about the legal standards. So it's clear, it's, it's clear. Um, but 
the analysis leads to the conclusion that, look, COVID is not different than any other kind of injury in the sense that it's not accepted from the legal standard. It is a If it's a work-related injury, that's exactly what it is. We see cumulative trauma injuries all the time. We see industrially related diseases all the time, hearts, livers, you know, uh, degenerative problems with the spine. We see these all the time, cumulative trauma injuries, injuries that occur over time rather than specific. COVID-19, if it is to be in workers' compensation, is not different. It's a work-related injury uh, or can be claimed as such. So it's subject to the same standards. Because it's an occupational disease, it's really hard to know. It's hard to know under the Honeywell standard, such that an employer is compelled legally to provide a claim form. Um, look, someone says, I have some symptoms, okay? Well, it's hard to know if something is COVID-19, why? Because we don't have any testing and they won't give you any testing because they're reserving it for the most important cases. Now it's gonna change in the future, but that's a key problem here, right? <clears throat> key problem is you don't know it's COVID-19. You know you have the flu and maybe you have some of the symptoms. Maybe it's pretty obvious to everyone around you that you had COVID-19, but remember, it's not reasonably certain. It's no, no. So not knowing whether or not, because it's an occupational disease, it's difficult to know it's a work-related injury. It's not like you're working at a construction site and you saw the guy fall off the building and land on his back, right? You just have someone who's sick. What is the nature of that sickness? Well, that's a medical legal question. So, and we don't have testing. So you may, you only under, I mean, it's hard to conceive of a situation in which you could say that, that you knew, according to the standard of Honeywell, that you had COVID-19. It could be something else without a test. So that's one issue. Another issue is how do you know it's industrial? That is, you know, how can you say that the employer knows that the COVID-19 uh, is from work? How do you know that? Now look, the AOE COE standard that you would have to prove in a court of law says that if you're at more, more, at more risk than the general public, then you can prove that it's industrial and the court will accept that. But for purposes of providing a claim form, it's not the same standard. For purposes of providing the claim form, the employer has to know it, not reasonably certain, but know it. So that how do you know it? And the answer is you probably don't. I mean, let's say you're a cop and you go out to work on the street every day and you're exposed all over the place. And you get COVID-19. You know, did you get it from work? Probably, yeah. Yeah, you probably did. If you went to court and you filed a claim and you went to court and put it in front of a judge, would you win? You might very well win. Let's say you're a, you're a hospital worker, same thing, right? Or any essential worker. But you could also have got it from home. You know, you could have got it during the latency period when you were still socializing. You could have got it, you know, uh, going to the grocery store and touching something. You could have. But So as an employer, you might, think it came from work and think it probably did. You might even be reasonably certain it came from work, but you don't know it, not according to the standard of Honeywell, at least in my opinion. Uh, and that's me as a neutral person, not a defense attorney. Uh, Honeywell's pretty strict. So, you know, you're not, how are you going to know? And the answer is, well, maybe you don't, maybe you don't. Maybe the employer does not know enough either that whether the person has COVID-19 or whether it was contracted on an industrial basis. They don't know it's sufficient to have the legal obligation to provide the claim form. Um, and, and so these are the issues that, that are going to manifest themselves in your initial 
uh, analysis. I think I got ahead of my slides a little bit here. Uh, now, look, does that mean that I, in any capacity, am recommending never provide a claim form? No, it doesn't mean that. There's a lot of considerations here um, for why a claim form should be provided or and when a claim form legally has to be provided under penalty of estoppel and breaking the 90-day rule and maybe the audit unit coming in and getting mad at you uh, and um, you know other things of this nature. Um, an employer has to provide a claim form if if the applicant asks for a claim form. If the applicant says, look, I would like a claim form. I think I have work-related injury. Got to give it to him. No doubt about it. If you don't do it, then you're breaking the law. Um, if the employer actually has knowledge from any source, if the actual knowledge is there, uh, then the claim form must be provided. So if you get a doctor's note or a disability form saying, guess what? There's COVID-19. It's industrial. You have knowledge, at least sufficient to investigate, right? So that means, you know, if you have that clear expression of a doctor, the guy, the guy, the gal has COVID-19 and it's industrial, then you got to provide a claim form. Or if a coworker tells you, tells a supervisor, hey, this other employee is claiming that they have COVID-19 and it's industrial. Well, that's knowledge of the claim being made from any source. So you should provide a claim form in that in instances. Can an employer ever know of an injury or claim? Uh, in other situations, um, maybe, but it depends on the situation, right? If you have actual knowledge of, if you have actual knowledge, then you've got actual knowledge. If you have an actual request for a claim, um, then you should you should do it. I mean, but, but look, we're all uh, human beings here too, right? Um, so what about that? What about your sense of um, obligation to your employees to treat them fairly? Um, you know, that will enter into the analysis or should at least enter into the analysis in the mind of the employer. And it depends on the kind of job you're doing, the overall circumstances and the parameters under which you think you might want to provide a claim for. I mean, doctors and nurses who treat COVID-19 patients, it's like, seems pretty rude not to give them a claim form. I mean, obviously, you know, that's probably where they got it. You could probably make an argument, but is that the argument you want to make? You know, that, you know, this COVID-19 nurse who's like been treating people, you know, with COVID-19 and now has it. I didn't have to buy my claim form because I didn't know. You want to make that argument? Right. I mean, did you feel bad about making that argument? Are you going to look like a jerk if you make that argument? Do you care? And if so, how much? Uh, do you care how you're perceived? And if so, how much? And what is the environment? Like essential workers, right? I just talked about a cop. What is it? What is this not a nurse? What if you work at, you know, what if you have a family of 19? that you live with and you go and you work at the grocery store and you come home and three of the people there had COVID-19, right? Now, where did you get it? You really don't know, you know? And, and if you're an employer, are you gonna give that person a claim form? Um, it's, it's worth thinking about the policy here. I mean, what if you have a factory with um, 100 people in it and 20 of them get COVID, are you going to just give them all claim forms? Because you know what they're going to do. They're all going to file them, right? And as an employer, you don't want that. But did they get it from work? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. You know, you're not under a legal obligation. Um, but what what is the practical and um, psychological realities that exist in that situation? That's why I can't give you an easy answer in this webinar. It's something that every, I think, owner has to decide for themselves. 
um, given the totality of the considerations. I'm just trying to lay it all out for you. Um, what if the employee doesn't have health insurance? Like, you know, what, I mean, what, what, what if workers comp is really their only avenue? Um, well, that might be a bit dramatic, but other than an emergency room, right? What if this is their most effective avenue for healthcare? I mean, what obligation do you have there? That's kind of, boy, that kind of brings it all home, doesn't it? It's like, ooh, I mean, what if that person dies? Cause they don't get care. You could die without hospital, hospital care with this disease. It's no joke. So what are the, uh, if an employer, you should ask yourself, what are the other healthcare options available to the workers? How fast would they get them? How effective are they relative to your workers' comp? You're gonna to wanna to think about that. You wanna you want to know that. You can't really get sued um, in civil court without fraudulent concealment of so, some sort. And, and my, my, my writings, and I put the Sullivan and comp sections at the bottom of each slide so you can go read about it more in depth. But, in our writings, we talk about that. And so you're not really in danger of suit, but you're in danger of you know, putting someone's life at risk if there is no other available health care and you don't give them a claim form. I mean, they they probably should be smart enough to file one, but they're not. You know, they're, a lot of workers just don't understand the intricacies of insurance law. You know, I mean, I, some people have never heard about workers' comp. So it's on the employer to really think about this. Remember, too, that just because you give someone a claim form, doesn't mean they have to file it, right? They don't have to file it. You can tell them, look, here's the claim form. Here's your notice of your rights. I'm giving this to you as a precautionary measure because if you have COVID-19 and it's work-related, then you know you can file the claim, but you're not obliged to do that. It's your choice. Um, they're not going to understand that. They're probably going to file it. They're probably going to go ask a lawyer. So, but, 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 sometimes they won't file it. You got to realize, too, that you're not accepting the case just because you give them a claim form. You're not saying, okay, you know, what you're doing is obliging yourself to $10,000 of care until it's denied and obliging yourself to investigate and make a decision. But that's it. You don't accept a case just by giving a claim from all you do is open the ball and make someone aware that this is an option. This workers' compensation is an option. Um, generally, one of the most significant consequences, the statute of limitations uh, problem. Like, um, if you don't give someone a claim form, you know, when you should, then they can, they can file, they're stopped, you know, you're stopped from raising the statute of limitations. And so you may decide not to give your workers a claim form, but, and so you may avoid a lot of claims that way, right? But for reasons I'm gonna outline here, you're gonna be vulnerable indefinitely to those claims being filed by those workers um, because for various reasons. Um, which I'll explain here, but you should think about that because when you give the claim form, they got a year. If they don't file it, then they've blown the statute and your liability is over. But you may have continuing, indefinite, unending liability to the prospect of all the workers who get COVID-19 or have injuries associated with it. Um, they, could, they may be able to file it indefinitely. So here's how it works. Um, so you have one year to file an application really once once you get notified of your rights. Um, but employees can argue they're not subject to the statute of limitations, either if they didn't know their rights or they didn't know they had a, a work-related condition. We see this a lot in the, the workers' comp practice. There's this older case, Reynolds, talks about a stop for failure to provide um, a claim form. And it explains that the, the employer's in the best position to provide notice and, and, and give 
the rights to an injured worker or someone who might be an injured worker. So they have an obligation when they know, when they know they have an obligation to provide um, the claim form. In this Kaiser Foundation's Hospital Martin case, um, the Supreme Court said that the statute of, the statute of limitations is told if you know and you don't provide the claim form. Uh, this is because it would prejudice uh, the employee. Um, now, you can overcome that if the applicant, the, the injured worker, has actual knowledge of their all their rights in workers' comp. So let's say I have a, a lawyer who works for me, and he spent significant amounts of time litigating statute of limitations um, issues. Um, he knows his workers' comp rights. And then he gets COVID-19. And he comes up to me and says, I have COVID-19, give me a claim form. And I say, screw you, get out of my office. I don't give out claim forms. I'm a mean employer who doesn't care about people. And then he goes and sits in his office and pouts. And then more than a year later, he files an application. Well, normally I couldn't raise the statute of limitations because I have, um, I have not provided the claim form and I, it would be told, but since he, he's in the unique position of having actual knowledge of his rights, he still only has a year to file. He's got to file within a year, even if I refuse him to claim for him. So that was the Carl's case that, that established the exception to the exception. You know, Actual knowledge will stop the tolling of the statute of limitations where the employer knows and doesn't provide the claim for him. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because most of the time, it's not about the employer having knowledge and not providing a claim form. That's a relatively rare occurrence, or at least I like to think it is. What is not a relatively rare occurrence is that the employer doesn't really know and the employee doesn't really know. A lot of times I'll get an, uh, an applicant, like uh, someone who wants to work for me as a lawyer, and I'll say, why is it so difficult to win a post-termination defense in a cumulative trauma claim? And why is that so hard? And the answer is because under the law as it works, if an employee doesn't know that they have a cumulative trauma case and that it's related to work, then they're not held to any obligation to proceed legally. In fact, the date of injury under 5412 is defined by the first concurrence of knowledge and disability. Without the knowledge, there isn't even an injury, legally speaking, and so the statute of limitations can't run. Just as the knowledge standard for the employer is very high, the knowledge standard for the employee is very high. And the obligation to report it, to file it, doesn't come about until there is knowledge. So that it's kind of flips it on its head, right? So if you don't preemptively give a claim form to everyone who says, I have the sniffles or I have symptoms uh, or I have injury that may be related to coronavirus in some way, then they're still going to be able to come back at you and get you, uh, whether you knew or not, because they didn't know, or at least they, under the standard of the law, they can they can demonstrate that they didn't know. So Reynolds only applied um, if the employer had knowledge and didn't give the claim form. But if it doesn't have knowledge, then it doesn't matter, right? Uh, but the applicant's the applicant can still do it. This is fifty four twelve, and fifty four twelve. Um, says that that the date of injury itself for purposes of statute of limitations, the post-termination claim, contribution between co-defendants, any legal, any legal debate, really, 
50 uh, for 12 is defines the date of injury is the date upon when the employee first suffered disability and either knew or in the exercise of reasonable diligence should have known that such disability was caused by the employment. So until the applicant has this requ requisite knowledge, um, there isn't even a date of injury. So there can't be a tolling of the statute of limitations. Uh, and I don't, I can't get into it here, but we have sections and sections of Sullivan Accomplished describes what does it mean for an employee to have the, um, uh, the knowledge, and that can mean going to a doctor and having a doctor tell you, but without that, you really don't have the knowledge. It's very, very difficult to show that the, there was a requisite knowledge. Um, the applicant just can testify that it's, he or she didn't know about, about the diagnosis or that it was work-related, and they'll likely win the case every time. In the current environment, when providing a claim form, you have to think a little bit about whether or not you actually should do it from a practical perspective. You don't want to put anyone in a situation um, where they're required to meet with potentially uh, infected employees. Um, it, it's, it's bad to physically come into contact people, right? And so they shouldn't have to meet, sign the claim form. Um, they could be in the hospital, they could be unable to sign the claim form, but there's another, there's another um, part of the law that's important here that may not require the claim form to actually be signed. There's this California Code of Regs 10.1037 that says, nothing in this ar article shall abrogate the duty of an employer to provide timely compensation even if the employee has not completed and filed the form. So even if there isn't a claim form, if the employer knows that there's a work-related injury, then they have to provide benefits. Um, so if you know that, you can probably have the app applicant sign the claim form electronically, complete it yourself, or just open the file um, without a claim form um, is probably the best way to go. Um, you have to realize that there's a duty to investigate that's associated with knowledge. If indeed you have sufficient knowledge, and we talked about the Honeywell standard for knowledge, right? But if you have that knowledge, you have to investigate. If you get a claim form filed, you have to investigate. And that's a clear cut duty. Um, you have to conduct a reasonable and timely investigation upon receiving no notice of knowledge of injury or a claim, um, of workers' comp benefits. So this triggers it. And something that's taken very seriously by the audit unit, it's something that's being taken very seriously by the in industry in general. Uh, if you don't investigate, um, then the audit unit will come and jump on your head repeatedly up and down. And you can really get in trouble for it because you can't just get a claim and ignore it. Um, and if you determine that, that there was a work-related injury, then you have to provide benefits whether a claim forms been filed or not. Um, so that that duty is is a, a one that weighs very heavily on the employer. If if a claim is actually accepted, um, then the duty of the employer completely shifts, you know, um, to one that requires the employer to be very proactive, um, absolutely proactive in providing benefits. So once you know, it's one thing to say, do I have the requisite knowledge to provide a claim form? Okay. It's another thing to say, 
do I have a claim form in hand or the requisite knowledge such that I need to investigate? Okay. But once the case is accepted, then you have to really go after it. You can't, you have to make sure that all the benefits that the applicant needs are provided. If you don't do it, um, then you're, you're in real trouble. Um, there's a specific reg that says a reasonable investigation must attempt to obtain the information needed to determine and timely provide each benefit, if any, which may be due to the employee. There was this case, Romano, which is an infamous case. It happened many years ago um, where a request for hospitalization was made and there were, there were serious health consequences when it wasn't approved and it wasn't handled properly. It wasn't investigated. It was just denied. Um, and the um, TPA and the employer were in real trouble for a long time. Um, there's a quote from that case. The labor code does not permit a defendant to bury its head in the sand in order to dodge its obligations. The duty to proactively investigate the need for benefits and to provide benefits if they are needed is one of the few absolutes and uh, in workers' comp and it's, and it's something that can, can really get you in trouble if you, if you don't do that responsibly. Audit penalties, the audit unit, and there was all kinds of stuff in that case too that went on and on and wasn't a pretty picture. So if an employer receives the requisite knowledge that it's industrial, it has to be investigating whether it's required to provide benefits. And if it's determined that it does, then the, the provision of benefits has to be uh, provided very proactively. Okay, so here's my last slide, but let me sum up. It's really important for the employers um, the carriers and the TPAs out there to really think ahead of time about when a claim form is going to be provided because you're going to be faced with the situation and you're going to need to know what your policy is. You're going to want to roundtable it in each situation with, with more than one person to make sure you're doing it right. Um, the law as it stands makes it clear that you do not have the obligation to provide a claim form uh, just because somebody is sick, even if that sickness looks like coronavirus. You do not have the obligation to provide the claim form even if someone is sick and you know they have the coronavirus if you don't know, not reasonably certain, but know that, um, that it's work-related, which is almost impossible to establish. Um, that being said, think about what you're doing. Um, Take your organization, ask these questions. What healthcare is available besides workers comp to my workers? If I don't provide a claim form and they go get non-industrial healthcare, what will that look like for them relative to workers comp? Maybe it's the same, maybe it's better. You should know that, okay? Ask yourselves, do I have essential workers or non-essential workers and do I wanna treat them differently? Non-essential workers, if, they get, if they're working at home, well, there's really probably little incentive to provide them a claim form because they probably didn't get it at work. You know, they, I mean, maybe they did. And remember, it's not just getting uh, industrial COVID, right? Someone could say, I have a psychological injury. I'm checking myself into a psych ward because of COVID-19. Um, you know, there could be an aggravation of an underlying industrial injury, which needs uh, perhaps more benefits, which you would be liable for because there's no apportionment in workers' comp. There could be all kinds of different scenarios where a claim form may be requested, but usually it's when a new claim is originated, of course, but it could be psychological as well as physical. Someone could say, I had a heart attack because you know I had the COVID disease and it may, I had a kind of a weak heart anyway, and now I have a heart attack. That could happen too. So you know, if you have a non-essential worker, are you gonna provide a claim form? 
generally speaking. And of course, every case has to be looked at carefully on its own merits uh, in light of the principles that we've talked about here. If you have essential workers, what kind of essential workers are they? You know, are they working at a factory? Are they part of the supply chain? Are they working at SpaceX? Are they an engineer? Or are they a nurse providing care? If they are a nurse, has there been any coronavirus cases in that hospital? You know, these are all questions you might want to ask yourself in deciding that you're not going to probably, you're always going to have at least a colorable argument. And a lot of times you have a damn good argument if you're an employer that, that you don't have the requisite knowledge. The question is, do you want to provide the claim form in the overall uh, circumstances? What is your relationship like with your, with your employees? You know, there's also uh, right now a letter being written to Gavin Newsom by uh, the unions that they want a presumption, a conclusive presumption, that if someone gets COVID-19 as an essential worker, then it's work-related. If that comes to be, well, of course, that would change this analysis completely, wouldn't it? Because then you would have the knowledge because, uh, because of the presumption. Or would you? Is the presumption enough to establish knowledge under Honeywell? But it certainly would tend to, to lead you in that direction. In any case... Uh, I'm advising the deep thought process well ahead of time for any coronavirus claims for every employer and insurance carrier and a TPA out there. Um, and then I'm, a, I'm advising a uh, careful roundtable of each individual situation and applying that general philosophy and uh, pre-made decision process to individual cases as they arise. And that's about it. I have my last slide here. We got our Solvent on Comp advertisement. Uh, SullivanandComp.com. Uh, you can send any questions or comments there. If you're not a subscriber, don't be don't be silly. It's to subscribe. We have 7,000 people in the state, or thereabouts, subscribing right now. If you're not one of them, then you're missing out. Um, in any case, I hope you enjoyed this presentation. As I said, it's just one in many series. This claim form. You th you think, hey, a claim form? Do you have to provide it? Simple question, right? It's not. And there's a lot more like this in the workers' comp land when it comes to the coronavirus. In the weeks to come. I'll be walking you through every single aspect of it. I look forward to it. And I thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was brought to you by Sullivan on Comp, the most useful resource for California workers' compensation practitioners. Over 6,000 claims professionals, attorneys, and employers rely on SOC to quickly find answers to the questions that come across their desks. Get $50 off a new subscription with coupon code POD50, that's P-O-D-5-0, at www.solvenoncomp.com.